0: James. Duncan. How are you, dude? I'm well, thanks. How have you been? I'm good, too. All right, today we're talking about the School of Life Emotional Identity. Um, We've put this blog post in the notes, but there's a series of questions which we'll go through. And one of the things I realized is that actually quite a few of the podcasts that James and I do are based on a series of questions. And in my opinion, they're kind of like group therapy and this is a bit strange because I wouldn't normally catch up with James and talk about these questions. Um, but I also think they're fun. So I've decided that I must think group therapy is fun. And if you're like, hey, do you want to hang out with your mate and do group therapy? I'm like, sounds like the worst idea ever. <laughs> um, but I'm like, no, no maybe, it's, maybe it's
1: a great idea. Well, I, I, I appreciate the sentiment, first and foremost, uh, um, with the idea of this being fun. So... Uh, However, I would offer to put a lens on it similar to a framework we like to use all too often, which is, so maybe this forum or podcasting is group therapy done well. Mm. Just like last week tonight is news done well. Forgetting Hmm. this could lead to someone to assume that just news is good. So if there is a, uh, I guess, a a, a, a way for you with you want to engage group therapy in a fun and engaging and a delicious and nutritious way right. podcasting with a friend can be a good idea
0: <laughs> yeah um, seriously like, talking about interesting things in an enjoyable way why wouldn't that be fun um, <laughs> but I suppose that I had kind of like Group therapy, that, that's in the bucket of don't want to do. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so don't judge a book by its cover, perhaps. And maybe tart up group therapy as interesting chat with your friend. And then you're like, yeah, sounds great.
1: Well, I, I will point out that um, one thing we are lacking is a facilitator. We kind of facilitate our own uh, direction here. So we could be uh, construed as being in somewhat of a bubble. So uh, I don't know. Maybe someone else can point out if, the, if there is any kind of uh, truth to that.
0: Hmm. All right, let's get down to the first question. Um, If people knew who I really was deep down, they'd be shocked. What's your answer to that, James?
1: Okay, so I think just to to help people um, get to where we are here, uh, it might be worth going through a little bit of an introduction of what emotional identity is. Um, I'll I'll try and do a very short um, synopsis, which is, so emotional identity is a characteristic way in which our desires and fears manifest themselves um, and how we respond to certain negative or positive um, events. And so what the School of Life has done, and and I'll admit, I don't know if this is something that is bigger than the School of Life or if this is actually a concept introduced by the School of Life, but they've offered um, like uh, four high-level pillars of emotional identity. The first one being self-love, the next one being candor, communication, uh, and then trust. And so what mm. we're doing now is to try and understand what our emotional identity level is or what kind of um, nature it is. Uh, the, the, the School of Life gives us a set of questions to answer against each of those pillars. And so what we're doing right now is understanding what our emotional identity around trust is, if, if, if that's fair.
0: Oh, sorry, self-love. Self-love <laughs> is self-love. Yeah. Well, Maybe Maybe switch it like self-love do I think that I have more self-love than I had, you know, in the past? Mm. So I, I don't know about you, but like, I think I was a relatively angsty teenager. <laughs> and I had, you know, <laughs> wanting to fit, I, I don't know, like pretty standard stuff. You know, I want to have friends and I want, you know, to be liked, etc. And so mm. I suppose, um, that, not that I didn't dislike myself, but I don't know if I loved myself, a sort of difference. Mm. I, but I think I slowly became more comfortable in my own skin. Yeah. And part of this was just like stopping caring. maybe that's self-love is stopping caring. Um, And so, I don't know. I don't think I'm the smartest person or the best-looking person or the best at sport or whatever else it is, right? At school, I I wasn't the best in any area. I was decent in some areas and not so good in other areas. But it took me till I was like about 20, till I just didn't give a crap anymore. And Mm. I was just like, actually, I I like being me. I don't want to be other people. And and I've realized that, I don't know, if some people never get there. So I think I I, I have a good amount of self-love for myself.
1: Mm. Yeah, so I think... um... You, you kind of touched on it in, in the beginning there where you were talking about self-love where you didn't care anymore about what other people think. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so another model that has been um, shared in some, um, some parts of literature is that when we are born and we are in a very dependent state with our caregivers, uh, we value ourselves entirely based on their opinion um, of us when we become much older in our childhood, around the teenage years, that becomes more socialised. So we care more about what our peers think of us. So that's where um, I can empathise with you, Duncan. As a teenager, <laughs> I would, um, you know, um, throw that in with a cocktail of raging hormones, and then you go, <laughs> "Thanks." Um, but you were developing a sense of self based on how you were perceived by others. And then when you get older, um, it was they suggest that you start well you can tend to become more intrinsically motivated in the sense of, well, I really, you know, value what I think of myself more so. And that's kind of where I feel the, the element of self-love is being expressed in this
0: particular forum. Yeah, I like that. Uh, one sort of qualification I thought I'd put in is, um, whilst we're saying don't care what others think, I don't want to annoy people. But I think I used to be more beholden to trying to see if others liked me. Mm. So, so so now I'm not like, uh I don't, you know, go around like you know, ruffling feathers. Like that's not at all what it is. But yeah. it's more about me trying to actually do things that I like, and me yeah. trying to like myself, yeah. not trying to figure out what others like and have others like me.
1: Yeah, and, and so and so that's what I like about um, you. Like that, like, do you? <laughs> no, not. I'm not talking about you, Duncan. <laughs> it's what I like about these questions, or some of them at least, in that they don't go to the obvious, which is like. A question, an obvious question would be, do I care what other people think about me? This, the first question is, if people knew who I really was deep down, they'd be shocked. Because what that, um, in my interpretation, is trying to do is get a sense of how honest of an evaluation do I have of myself? And how do I perceive that compared to someone else if they knew that about me? And so my, um, I guess my two, two cents on that is that, do I have enough of a healthy disposition to trust that either a, I am, you know, somewhat warped and twisted deep down that I have, you know, I'm not a perfect human being, but that's okay. Or do I have some more of a kind of, I guess, blanket, um, approach to suggesting that I'm, I think I'm a decent person. Therefore anyone else
0: who really knew me would think the same thing. Hmm. Well, if I, if I try to answer this, if people knew who I really was deep down, they'd be shocked. I don't think so. <laughs> I think um, that, you know, I don't know. I talk in this podcast. I write a blog. Um, I am, you know, uh, sort of founder to two startups and, you know, to talk I- internally. So I think that a big part of who I am is the work that I do. And hmm. this is public to the people that are around me. I think if there was something that they'd be shocked about, it's kind of actually what I do in a day. Um <laughs> so not, not not who I am, but how I am, I suppose. Mm. So as an example, like I don't know, I wake up, try to wake up naturally. Um, so no waking up by alarm. So I use my alarm not to oversleep. And I can tell sort of how stressed I am in some respects by how much I wake up before my alarm and don't get back to sleep. Mm. So I woke up at 5 a.m. this morning, which is an hour and a half before my alarm. And then it's like, go to the gym. And so then, you know, by 8am, I did two and a half hours of listening at 5x speed, which is 12 and a half hours of one time human speed listening. And so um, the amount of stuff that I crank through from a content perspective, I think if I actually knew what I did in a day, it'd be like a little scary because I kind of work (laughs) when I'm awake Monday morning to Thursday afternoon. Although I do have sort of little mini breaks in there, but like I get a lot done.
1: Yeah. Um, So I I appreciate this, this semblance of like, you know, if someone really knew what Duncan does in a day, that would be shocking for them. Uh, but I think in light of trying to get to the heart of where we're going here with this particular question, um, to be clear, it's not about whether who you are on the outside truly reflects who you are on the inside. It's your perception of self-worth as determined by other people, so that's that extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. So the point is um, we're all, quote, interesting on the inside, it's just a matter of whether we acknowledge and accept and embrace this part of ourselves or if we reject or repress it, thinking that, you know, parts of it is shameful. Therefore, we should be ashamed of ourselves. Um, and so if we believe the latter, then I honestly think that someone would then feel that people would be shocked by who they truly are. Um, so, I mean,
0: that, at that point helps, I guess. Mm. Well, I think... There's nothing that I'm ashamed of about myself. Um, that doesn't mean that I think every part is wonderful, but, you know, um, no, I, I'm quite comfortable that I make the decision I want to. Um, so, mm. I, I, yeah, do you think there's parts of yourself that you're ashamed of?
1: Well, no, there's not the parts I'm ashamed of. And I think it goes to... Like, there are definitely parts that I consider to be private and that I don't think need to be shared to the wider um, population. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I also um, try to reflect on this being something that's inherent in everyone and that this is something that we all contend with, you know, whether it's going through our childhood and early adulthood years and towards the later part where we start to really try to form a clear and concise understanding of our own identity.
0: Yeah, and there's a quote that I like from... Oh, see if you can guess who this is from. I'm not proud of everything I've done, but I'm proud of who I am today.
1: Oh. oh
0: I, I, I'm, going to,
1: I'm going to be annoyed that I didn't get it, but you're going to have to put me okay. Out in my misery. Okay, this
0: person is a she, and she was interviewed on John Oliver last week tonight. Uh... Samantha B. <laughs> no, Monica Lewinsky. Ah, oh, of course, of course. Um, so, yeah, um, I don't, I haven't had relations with Bill Clinton, <laughs> if anyone's wondering. <laughs> um, uh, but, Thanks you know, honestly, like, I, I do some things that, my, you know, I cannot necessarily think is the smartest decisions. But, um, you know, I, I, I basically, I'm not proud of everything I've done, but I am proud of who I am. So, mm.
1: yeah. All right, so let's um, expedite this to the next question. Yeah. It can be embarrassing to ask where the bathroom is, so I'll, I'll be really interested to um, hear your side of this first, Duncan.
0: Yeah, so James and I sort of had the question write a couple of notes, and I wrote, "WTF is this question? Why would this be embarrassing? Am I missing something?" And then James's comment is great because I'm like, "Why would it be embarrassing to ask where the bathroom is? Like literally, like I, it was like totally like just I'm like what the hell is this?"
1: <laughs> All right, so. Um, to, to, to your point Duncan I'll try and walk you through my thinking mm. um, I found it very interesting firstly that you didn't quite comprehend this question um, because um, you related the, the sense of feeling disgusting as a biological phenomena um, where going to the toilet is about as biological as one can get so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of literature out there on how people and in particularly religious um, communities are inherently ashamed of their, quote, private body parts. Um, and that any normal biological function should be ostracized or, you know, like, why, why else do we have enclosed cubicles around our toilets? Um, so the way I understood this question is considering... Um, Do we have, as part of our emotional identity, this story that there are parts of ourselves that are inherently dirty or disgusting or should be, um, I guess, cautioned off from the rest of uh,
0: society? Mm. That's an interesting read. I suppose I said a friend is like, okay, I'm at a restaurant. Am I embarrassed to ask where the bathroom is? Like, nope. I'm at a friend's house. Am I embarrassed to ask where the bathroom is? Nope. Um, but from, 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 I think what James is trying to say, um, do I think that I want to walk around naked? Hell no. You know, do I think that I want everyone else to walk around naked? Hell no. Um, and so <laughs> takes you to the next level, but I get your yeah. point. Yeah. So, um, I don't know, like, I'm not embarrassed about asking where the bathroom is. Do, do I think that there's some parts of the human body that are I don't know, I think your word might be disgusting or something. I can't remember what it is. Like, or, yeah, or de- yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, uh, but that doesn't, to me, seem to relate to being embarrassed when asking where the bathroom is.
1: Well, okay, so think of it another way. Like, um, taken to its absolute extreme, our um, persona on Facebook or, um, or or Instagram is a constructed view of ourselves. We try to put out, like... It, like in general, not everyone, but in general, people put their best put um, their their best faces forward when they're um, expressing themselves online, right, or on a dating site or something similar. Mm. Um, that, that's an extreme example, but just in normal day-to-day life, we kind of want to create this uh, this persona or this avatar where we can somewhat, um, I guess, have control over how we're perceived. And so, by doing something like asking someone for the bathroom is an implicit reminder that, hey, I'm actually a normal biologically functioning meat sack and I have to go and do some, <laughs> some biological things, mm. right? And so now that the veneer is broken or that, um, that facade that you have been trying to construct has to be breached in order for you to be able to get the directions
0: that you so desire. Hmm. I thought I'd just pick up on one point from James that most people are trying to put forward a, you know, a rosy picture of themselves. I've actually honestly tried to do the opposite many times. So I, <laughs> I used to work at Google. Um, and when you meet new people and you're out, like, one of the first questions I'll ask is, what do you do? And then you're like, Google. And then they're like, oh, and it comes across as a good thing, right? Um, and so one, a friend of mine, and like, we would go out, we would have, we had to pick what careers we had for each other, and we had to mm. pretend that. And But I would also just like do stuff that I thought was fun. So I was kind of like, I want to see who this person is. Like, I don't want to ask. I would play a game, like, I'm not going to ask them what they do as a job because mm. I think that this will bias me. But then if they ask, I'd say some things, like, for instance, everyone is like, I got fired for underperformance, and then just see what they did. It's kind of like a little social experiment, or pick some non glamorous job. Um, now, I'm sorry that this, this, you know, so basically like, I don't know, if you're like a dishwasher or something. Now, there could be great. You know, it's it's not like necessarily seen as glamorous. Um, and so I'd, I'd say things like this just to see what would happen with people and see if they'd be like, nah, I'm yeah. walking off this person's crap. And so <laughs> I, I actually think I sort of attempt to do sort of the opposite. Um, mm. And yeah, like I know some people definitely try to put the rosiest yeah. picture of themselves forward. But yeah. I think there are certain times where I've tried to be like, I wanted to see if you like me for who I am, not because of some badge that I have. Mm-hmm. Fun fact. I
1: think that the, the best um, job title that we came up for Duncan was, and we tried to make it up as in like not true, was <laughs> sh- Ship Balancer. Yeah, this is a good one. Forgot and, that. and it turns out that's a real thing. <laughs> and there's a very... No, it's, yeah, yeah. It's a real... Like in in large tankers and... Um,
0: no, it's not, uh, it's not and, real. So this is the... Well, tr- so, so, so a big, large container ship things, you know, you can see the containers stacked really high. Right? How come they mm. don't fall off? They've got gyroscopes in them. Right? They're in the sea. They would rock normally. And yeah. so, the gyroscopes keep it steady. And so, I happen to know this because I did engineering. And so, people are asking, what are you? I'm a ship balancer. What's that do?" Well, you know the ships, like, over time, they'll let rust and they'll wear away. So, you have to actually go in and put weights in, in specific places to balance the ship out or else it'll be going along on an angle. And I thought it was funny because anyone who knew about ships, and that's probably not very many people would know that that's not how ships are balanced. Like, it's totally irrelevant. And so, yeah, we'll make it up just weird and wonderful things. Um, and also, I don't necessarily think like being a ship balancer is like the most glamorous job going around or something. But yeah, and then you just talk to people and you have to like try to keep this story because it's, it's kind of just a social experiment. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. So, just, just for um, uh, um, legacy sake or whatnot, a ballast engineer is someone who works with the material provided to, uh, to utilize stability on a large vehicle or structure. So, it is a real thing. Um, Okay. Okay. um, But yeah, it was an interesting social experiment that Duncan uh, um, imparted on 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 certain individuals. So um, the next question is: in relationships, it can feel pretty disturbing when someone you like starts to like you back. I really like this question. All right. So, um, so Duncan, have you ever felt this
0: sensation, or does this actually resonate with you at all? So. My initial response was like, no, um, because isn't this the point of a relationship, like mutually <laughs> liking each other? Um, so wouldn't it feel disturbing if you liked someone and they didn't like you back? Not when they like you. Um, but I suppose the, the one that's certainly that came to me is like um, the first time I was really in love. I won't use any names. Um, it wasn't, you know, of course, we had some initial attraction. But like four or five months in, I remember being just like head over heels. Like I was like, what is this? Um, and I think I was like 19 and, you know, there was like mega chemical infatuation going down. Um, and it was disturbing. Not that this person oh, I think liked me, um, but that I had reached this, this plane of liking them where I was like worried that um, they wouldn't be around. You know, if, if they left me that I'd be a wreck. Right. Mm. Because, mm. because I so so initially me liking them and someone liking back, I'm like, no, nah, isn't that great? Not disturbing. The, the first thing is say is like, well, okay, I like this person so much. And this was like four or five months in that I was like, if they left, that would be disturbing. So not yeah. when they like me back, that you like someone, they like you and then it might evaporate. Yeah. Um, I, I, I actually see, the.
1: I, I think, uh, tell me if I'm um, getting this wrong, but um, the, the, the semblance of, the disturbance you feel when someone starts to like you back is that suddenly you now you kind of feel like you have something to lose or you know you, you start Correct. having this attachment to this person and you start having these feelings of like wow this is what someone liking me feels like I really like this but then suddenly um, you know survival mode Duncan kicks in it's like what happens if I lose this? Or <laughs> <laughs> So, um, I, yeah, I actually hadn't thought of it that
0: way before. What about you, James? Do you feel disturbing when someone you like starts to like you back? Okay, so here's why I really like this question,
1: because it just so happens that um, I'm also reading another book at the moment um, by two incredibly renowned um, uh, uh, psych- uh, therapists, Avil Hendrix Hendricks uh, um, and and Hen- and 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 oh, come on, Hendrix, dude! Right? <laughs> this is horrible. This is oh, okay. What's the Spit slack. it out! Spit it out! Right, so, so the book's called "Getting the Love You Want," yeah, and it goes to a very uh, detailed degree of understanding what is happening in our relationships, with a particular reference to instances like this when somebody you like starts to like you back so on a conscious level it makes sense like you know we go to great lengths to seek happiness well, why then should we be afraid to make you know um of it to um be make sense of it so
0: <laughs> sorry you're uh, gaffling you your uh, said it's uh, so good okay i think so, it's a supportive friend support keep going james Okay,
1: so if you if you give me some a, a little bit of uh, leeway to try and break down my thinking, do it. So what their contention is yeah. is that this actually goes back to our early childhood, and so when we were young children, we we had boundless energy and like you know in, in intense joy, and what they found was that a lot of our pleasures were curtailed by our caregivers, so that it would be you know safe and enable us to conform to social norms, like they tell us to don't yell, don't run, don't jump on the couch, be careful, you're making too much noise. So our fun was being cut short because it threatened the repressed state of our caregiver. This is what they're laying out. And many, so many adults have long given up, diving into the lake, rolling down the hill and whatnot, because these limits were imposed of us, imposed on us, sometimes in punitive ways. We began to make an unlikely association between pleasure and pain. So this is where they're talking about it's disturbing when someone likes you, because deep down, we were taught subconsciously as children, that when we would seek pleasure, there was some part of ourselves that was not acceptable. And so internally, we taught ourselves that that pleasure seeking was not okay. Does that make sense?
0: Kind of. Yeah, um, I suppose, bring it back to sort of the broader question. And I think this is very interesting. You could probably do a whole podcast on this. Like, do you feel disturbed or disturbed when you need someone you like starts to like you back or, or mm-hmm. not really? And so, and yeah. so like, like, again, this is just maybe Duncan is an upside-down human. Why <laughs> why, why would that be disturbing? Again, isn't it disturbing if someone you like doesn't like you back? Like, am I, am I what, what am I missing here? I missed I, the whole I, point about why oh, it was bad to go, ask going to the toilet. Yeah, And now I'm like, no, I, I like it when there's a mutual liking of each other. That's yeah. a good thing. So
1: um, if I can help try and um, bridge the gap, there are two yous. There are two Duncans. Like as hard as that is to believe, we get, we've got enough Duncans in the yeah, world. One is enough. <laughs> no, no, no one more. is enough. So there's your conscious, rationally thinking um, prefrontal cortex brain where all of the awareness of Duncan, I am Duncan, I am a walking meat sack um, resides. But then there is also a much deeper level in your subconscious brain um, where all of the, um, I guess, abstract thinking occurs. And it's within that section of the brain we actually start to, so um, Jordan Peterson was, doing a better job of explaining this to me, but this is where making sense of your reality and the social constructs of that reality um, has a certain structure to it and your brain interpretates that structure in the subconscious. So you don't know this is happening. So when you say, I don't really get why it would be disturbing when someone likes you, starts to like you back, I think everyone consciously or just like on surface level can be like, yeah, that doesn't make sense. Like that's the whole point of a relationship, as you said. So um, I'm interested in the choice word of disturbing because there's something going on here that I don't fully understand. And that's something um, what um, Harville Hendrix uh, posits as happening in your subconscious brain, which was taught to, and programmed in you at a very early stage in your childhood. Does that help make sense? Not really.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's move on if it's cool. Um, I'm going to skip the next question because I kind of covered it. But the next one is when people like you, a lot of it comes down to what you've managed to achieve. Mm. Um, So I'll give you my two cents here. like, no. Um, So (laughs) in in markets, they say I'd rather be lucky than good. Well, I'd rather like people who are good than lucky. (laughs) I'm not really too fussed about what you've achieved. I care more about how you achieved it. So, at work, I say, uh, if there's a project, I don't care if you get a good outcome or a bad outcome. I care how you went about getting that outcome. Mm. So, if you got a good outcome, but you fluked it or it was like, you know, you were lazy, not good. If you get a bad outcome, but you you worked hard and it was fair, that's okay. Mm. And so, for me, I'm not saying that what you achieve isn't, you know, zero value. But Mm. what if you went about it in a morally, you know, uh, unfit fashion? And you would like, you know, stabbing people in the back, or you know, you got, you got lots of money, and you know, but you did it badly or something. Debbie's and So Debbie. for me, um, yeah, you no, know, um, I, I, when I, when we come down, get to know who the person is. And right. part of what they achieved is that, but it's not that, that you know, so and so built something and so and so else built something, and therefore they are equal. Like, no, they could be totally opposite. One person mm-hmm. is someone who I could have a massive amount of time from and really like, and the other could be someone who I, did, you know, detest.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, so to me, this is, again, a test on how you view your own worth in relation to others. So if you believe people only like you because of what you've achieved, it could be argued that you have a low sense uh, of self-worth, in that people would only like or accept you based on what you can do for them or for society, not on who you are as a person. So this is where I feel, Duncan, you kind of have distinguished between what you've achieved and how you set out to achieve it. So... You know the results don't matter is what have you put in place to try and achieve a desired outcome and that would be your your model for assessing someone's character. Would that be fair?
0: Yeah, I suppose that's a better way of looking at it. I'm much more interested in your character than I am interested in what you've achieved. Now, Mm. part of what you've achieved is part of what your character will be. But to me, you're measuring the outputs as opposed to... And that's not who somebody is, in my opinion. So, my character, or their outputs or your achievement is not the thing that's important. It's their character, which is how they go about things. What do they yeah. do, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, so,
1: and I think this is also important um, that you localize it to you because there's definitely a lot of people liking people only because of what they've achieved in the world. I would posit that I like Elon Musk predominantly because of what he's achieved in the world <laughs> I don't know him personally so I have no other vector to base my judgment of him off it's a, it's when you look at who do I have within my personal relationship sphere um, and what is the basis for that relationship are they really are they really there for you know more sycophantic reasons that you know they want to leech off my success and if I truly believe that then I don't believe that they actually like me for who I am. And I think this is actually um, can be a problem for people who have a lot of success. How do you know whether people really like you for you for your character or for your more material success?
0: I think that the example of Elon Musk is really good. Now, I would like to meet you, Elon Musk, if you somehow happen to be listening to this. So anything I say <laughs> should hopefully count towards me hopefully getting a chance to meet you. Um, look, what he has accomplished is incredible. Um, I think in terms of helping humanity, it's arguable that he's accomplished more than any other human ever. Um, and however, I think that he's kind of one of those love him or hate him type people if you are working for him. Mm. And I think that, for instance, some people at Tesla, he might be the reason that they work there and will never leave. And some people, he might be the p- reason they quit and will never come back. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, it's like a di- you know dichotomy. And so, it's not just what is achieved. Um, I think that's a, that's a good example um, of someone who, you know, it's the character as well. Now, I respected it. I don't know how you couldn't. Personally, I would, you know, definitely be interested in working for him. Um, I'm not going to quit what I'm doing now. But... You know, I I definitely see how he could be. However, a very much a quiet taste.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I I completely agree. So, summing all of that up, I think um, my self assessment on self love, I will say, is healthy. (laughs) 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 I haven't done the math or anything on that, but like, um, so uh, we're halfway through and we've we've only done. Halfway. We're
0: quarter. Oh, halfway through the time and we've done. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Thank you.
1: Thank you for catching up with me, Duncan. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the next one is candor. Yeah. Cool. So question one: People tend to think too much. Duncan,
0: what do you think about that? <laughs> well, I sort of think it depends with what type of thinking you do. <laughs> so cool. my two cents is people tend to do too much of the wrong thinking and not enough of the right thinking. Mm-hmm. And so if they are, you know, in not you know self love, right? You can do. A lot of thinking about how your life's not good, and your friend's life on Instagram looks better, and how you're not, you know, sure if you're doing a good job at work, and you know, are you feeling worried that you're liking someone and they're liking you back? And mm-hmm. I'm sort of like, no, well, I, I don't care about you know some external badge like you know Duncan earns X dollars or, or whatever else it is. I care about the character. So to me, that's the right kind of thinking. You know, I'm I'm happy if somebody I like likes you back. But that's good thinking. I think actually, you know, being disturbed about that is disturbing <laughs> mm. um, so all else equal um, yeah I think people do the, too much of the wrong thinking as opposed to the right thinking but some people do some good some bad and if I look back on Duncan 10 years ago it was probably more wrong thinking than good thinking and I hope now more good thinking than bad thinking <laughs>
1: um, I, I, I like your thinking <laughs> <laughs> <Respect>. <laughs> um, and I think it, it definitely plays into that well Quantity not really the the issue here. It's the quality, or arguably it could be the quality. And um, to quote the the great First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, "Small minds discuss people, average minds discuss events, great minds discuss ideas." So that I is think epic. This... I've never heard that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well there you go. Um,
0: oh my God! Small minds. I'm writing this down. Keep, keep go.
1: Duncan you can pick it up in the recording after this. (laughs) so um, playing into that um, that model it feeds off your initial uh, premise that you know we need to be doing more of the right kind of well not the right I don't want to say right and wrong but more of the kind of thinking where we focus on ideas not on what people are doing in their own lives or in how they're interacting with each other if that makes sense Hmm,
0: totally um, one other thing so we're talking about quality I think quantity does matter it's, it's both as well and so I sort of think of it in two ways consumption versus creation and I think that a lot of people I've got two minutes as I wait for my coffee pull my phone out get on Instagram so it's like you know must be feeding mind because if I'm not feeding mind then my thinking goes off and I have mm. anxiety you know depression worries you know whatever else it is <laughs> and so the yeah. way to block that out is to use some Panadol Instagram Netflix you know, etc right <laughs> And yeah. so I think um, that when I, again, <laughs> like I was person. 20, I had more, lots of time and there wasn't, you know, smartphones back then 15 years ago. And so I would get bored, but then, you know, that was filled with like TV or something, right? Mm. Um, <laughs> and so now I try to make a lot of time for creation, not mm. just consumption. So for instance, yeah. Sunday, no consumption, no no, no no reading, no watching stuff, no speaking to people. And it's just thinking and writing. Um, it's your unplanned plan. Plan (laughs) unplanned. No, no, that's (laughs) Saturday. But 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 anyways, um, I think you need to spend time thinking, and a lot of people don't actually because consumer isn't thinking. But then when they do, they're not necessarily doing the right kind of thinking. And so I try to make conscious space every day for thinking time. And some people's jobs is like I don't you know each their own, but like it's actually doing something as opposed to thinking. It's kind of like the lights are on, nobody's home, and so yeah. Um, I love thinking time. If you're not thinking, you're not creating. To create thought, you have to think. Yeah, and most people aren't thinking, in my opinion. (laughs) In that particular way,
1: I would, um, I would agree agree with that. My challenge here is reflecting on how does this equate to my own personal level of candor. So, you know, in terms of being honest with myself, um, which is what uh, the school of life posits your level of candor relates to. I cannot square with how whether I think others think too little or much is related. So I guess if I think others think too much, then I think less of myself, but that's not necessarily an honest evaluation. It might simply be that I just don't think highly of myself, which would be self-love. So conversely, it could be it's my judgment of others. Do I judge others to be overthinkers? Honestly, I can't think of a time where I've judged people to a degree at which they think. So... Um, instead this might not be a personal but more sociological, social political question in the sense that yet I do think people as a population um, think too much. or in a sense, I would say definitely not. And so it's not whether you are engaged um, or when or how much. It's, it's about whether you are thinking on the right thing, whether you are spending time for diffusive thinking, for example.
0: Mm. I'll I'll give you my summary. I think all else equal, the average human has more consumption versus creation than they should. So they should have more thinking versus consuming. Mm. And that when they think, it's more negative sum versus positive sum. Mm. So I've systemically shifted my life to try to make more and more time of creation or thought. And, you know, they said there are two wolves in the head, the good wolf and the bad wolf. Which wolf wins? The wolf you feed the most. So when you've got some time to think, don't sit there and like, let's feed the bad wolf. I don't like that person. Why is this life not good? Am I disgusted that this other person likes me back? You know, feed the good wolf.
1: Yeah. Yeah. agree. Okay. So next question. Well, it's not so much a question, but a statement. I'm not a jealous person. So you want to go first?
0: You want me to go first?
1: I'll go first. So this is a good question. Um, I do believe it can be helpful in assessing how candorous one can be in general. I'd say I am not a jealous person, but I am certainly familiar with it. So, an easy example would be I am jealous of everyone who does not have hay fever. (laughs) (laughs) I have no qualms with admitting that. Um, But I can also say I've observed pangs of jealousness shoot up when I see others, when I've seen other people living out success or. Succeeding where I struggled or more simply those enjoying the trappings of a successful life like you know the brain goes Oh, I want that house. I want that car. Or I want that holiday um, so Yeah, I think How honest with yourself can you be like are you familiar with the feeling of jealousy and how much does that play into whether you're not? You think you're a jealous person
0: Yeah, um, so I wasn't cool at school and I, I thought all else equal, it would be better to be cool than not cool, right? Um, so, I think I was definitely jealous as a teenager. Um, mm. But now I'm not. Um, this quote from Jordan Peterson, um, who's someone we talk about all the time, compare yourself not to others, but to who you were yesterday. Mm. Um, and so, for me, there are areas that I want to change about myself. Basically, everything. and It's level up everywhere. Whether I think it's a relative strength or relative weight, it's want to level up. Um mm. And sometimes I'll be disappointed that I don't feel I'm making so much progress in an area that I've been focusing on. I'm like, come on, you've been trying to like, you know, things. so I suppose I'm trying to improve, but I believe I'm trying to compare myself to who I was yesterday, not mm. to other people. Mm. And so jealousy is the wrong word, because I think when you're comparing against yourself, it's, it's a different word, which might be, I don't know, sometimes I'm disappointed. Other times I'm, you know, mm. uh, proud, but I'm not jealous of myself. Mm. If that makes sense, yeah. Like,
1: yeah. So just um, another quick shout out. Jordan Peterson is another epic human being who, which I would very much like to meet. So Jordan Peterson, yeah. if you are listening. <laughs> now, having said
0: that, this stupid thing that you do. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: um, so maybe put differently, um, if we were trying to find utility out of the word jealousy, maybe we could say, "I want to be jealous of my future self," so that mm. you can you can oh. put the onus on growth because that's kind of um, like a, a hand-fisted approach to saying, compare yourself to who you were yesterday. Um, and I think that's a really good perspective to have. But I actually do like to do an exercise where I project myself forward and imagine my future self coming back and talking to me about mm-hmm. what I had achieved and what I did to achieve that. So it's kind of like this dual duality of like, yes, you know, measure your worth based on how far you've come, but also push yourself forward by setting yourself up for a desired standard that you would like to achieve and have
0: that, you know, that internal dialogue. Mm. Okay. Let's move on to the next question. Hey, I am basically very sane. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, wanted things to say like, you know, a decision is logic times emotion. Um, and, and, My emotions can sometimes be stronger than at other times. Um, And so I would like to think that sometimes I make very good decisions, but also, unfortunately, I think sometimes I don't make the greatest decisions. Um, Mm. And so one of the things I try to do is to figure out when I'm sort of more than one standard deviation outside normal emotional levels. Mm. Um, And then I try to delay making a decision at that point. So, yep. I'm not playing sport and if someone's, you know, I don't know, passed the ball to me, I'm like, let me think about that for 24 hours. Like, no, nah, you got to make a decision real quick. Or I'm not, I don't know, a surgeon. It's like, let, let me think about this. But for me, the vast majority of decisions, like there's little tiny ones like, I don't know, what am I going to eat for lunch? But the, all the important ones, I could just decide, I'm not going to make that today. I'm going to make it tomorrow. I'm going to make it next week. Like, it doesn't matter. And so... I've sort of found that, yes, sometimes I I don't think I make what I would consider to be silly um, decisions. And Mm. typically, that's when my emotions are running high for whatever reason. Mm. And that the approach is to figure out if you are hopefully emotional. And the best way is to actually have regulators around you who tell you. But Duncan, I think, you know, and and when they tell you, you can immediately see it. But before they tell you, you're like, Mm. what are you talking about? Oh, Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Good point. <laughs> so sometimes <laughs> I make good decisions and sometimes not. But have people around you tr- try to tell you when you are, but outside one's and Then if you are, don't make that decision if you don't have to. Yeah.
1: So they say, don't promise when you are happy, don't reply when you are angry, don't decide when you are sad. Who's and in I this?
0: Think... This is another second
1: great quote. <laughs> Who's said it? Um, I believe it was Buddha. Uh, not entirely sure, so um, we can look that up later. But it
0: plays—it
1: <laughs> plays precisely to the point you were making, Duncan, about how our emotions. Can you say it again? From- I want to hit this. <laughs> <laughs> Don't promise when you are happy. Yeah. Don't reply when you are angry. Don't decide when you are sad. Mm. And it's looking at the, um, the 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 element of your emotional state and the effect it has. On your uh, your actions, so to speak, mm. um, and I think that can like sit itself on this spectrum of what we would consider to be, you know, sane or otherwise, or sane or insane, if that makes sense. Mm.
0: Yeah. Um, so I suppose what you're sort of saying is the same as me, which is that sometimes you make good decisions, and sometimes you make bad decisions. Is, is that a fair thing? Well, so. Um, I wanted to
1: you know respond to that first, but they're, um, they're, they're, what I also would like to say is, you know, first of all, I believe we're all insane. It's just a matter of degree. <laughs> uh, um, I, for one, uh, consider myself a stable genius. Uh, <laughs> I am a very
0: stable genius. <laughs> I love that he's like up there saying that. Oh God. Now,
1: so, so the more I learn about subjectivity um, and things like cognitive biases, the more I believe. Um, that there is no such thing as a single worldview, view um, or, you know, this thing about objective truth um, and that our best guard against insanity is by absorbing as many views as possible, but kind of like what you were talking about, Duncan, by having these reference points. Mm. Um, so, but all, it's, 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 it's especially important to have competing or seemingly contradictory ones as well. Mm, mm. Right? Mm. Totally. So, um, uh, one, you know. one more point, if I may. Um, going back to the original question, do I consider myself, quote, sane? Well, here's where it gets interesting. If I'm truly honest with myself, yes, I do think I am sane. Yet I'm fully aware that this is not the conventional sense that's considered for a healthy disposition, right? So this is also another interesting phenomena that, in that our tendency is to mark ourselves, regardless of the impression it gives, As long as we know it's in our best interest, right? So, for example, giving charitably has been shown to increase happiness. Knowing this fact, can one ever truly be charitable when they know that that act will, as a consequence, be in their own best interest? So here, what's in my best interest is to think, no, I'm not saying because I intellectually understand a lot of reasons why the human mind is not entirely rational. So here's the kicker. I think a healthy mind has to think of itself as sane. In other words, it has to be able to trust its own worldview that what it perceives is based on some form of reality, that the mind can reliably interact with the world around it. So while I do accept the notion that those who think themselves insane or going insane are actually not because it requires a rational mind to observe that fact, I, however, believe that is in fact an infallible question um, to ask, you know, whether I think I'm sane because it's similar to, are you asleep? A sleeping person can never truly answer that, truthfully answer that question for they would need to be awake to do so. At the same time, an insane person cannot truthfully say they are insane because it, re- re- it would require a sane mind to make that
0: distinction. Sorry, that was my ramble. <laughs> Maybe I'll put it this way. I think that I'm sane in that I recognize that I do insane things. <laughs> Only an insane person would say they don't do insane things. Mm. So basically, mm. to be sane, you must recognize that you are insane at times. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I, I think that's a fair um, character. Two minutes of James, 20 seconds of Duncan. There we go. <laughs> Talking about sane. <laughs> okay. Um, let's jump to the next question, which is, I don't mind feedback in theory, but most of what I've received has been really quite off the mark. Uh, I'll ask this. I love feedback. And that initially, I'll feel it's off the mark. And then after 24 hours of digesting, I'll be like, that is some seriously <laughs> insightful stuff. I cannot believe I didn't see that earlier. And then yeah. it'll like percolate through the system for the next couple of weeks. And then you'll just be like, sometimes like, oh, my God, how how could I have not seen this before? Yeah. Like, this is a level of uh, navel gazing that is of the highest order. And only an insane person <laughs> would not have been able to see this. So. Yeah. Feedback is a gift. There's always some yeah. truth in it, even if it's just about that person telling you. So you're, it's actually so them telling you something about them. Yeah. So yes, feedback, you know, is always some truth, but there's probably yeah. always some untruth.
1: Yeah. So I I, re- um, I appreciate the the extra dimension you've added to this, which is your response to it over time. Mm. Because my honest um, impression of having given you feedback in the past, Duncan, is that you have responded in similar vein to this particular statement um, but i have two and i think um, you know with a human population sample of two that there's something to be um to be observed here in that um you know we have this thing called an ego uh part of its purpose is to protect our minds against ourselves where there is a natural response or a natural inclination to say like well someone's just given me some feedback about how i have not interacted with the world in a suitable way therefore i think they're wrong because i you know all i know is my own existence and therefore it's justified um so i like how you talk about that well i do get that initial feeling first but then i sit on it and over time as it's absorbed i start to see where the you know the, the, the inflection point is for me to take on as new insight so i really appreciate that uh, that nugget of wisdom Duncan.
0: yeah if i look back I think I've been able to find at least one major blind spot each year of my life Mm. that in hindsight or after the fact is stunningly obvious. But at the time that it was alerted to me was, what are you talking about? And given that this has happened so many times, I try now very hard to, when someone's saying something, ask clarifying questions. Mm. Do not try to respond. Just try to understand what they're saying. Yeah. Then let your ego stop in defense mode and then let it try to like start to process. And so, yeah, um, I think natural is defend, defend. But now am I trying to rewire my natural response to clarify, clarify, then <laughs> digest, digest. And then after digesting, it's like, well, that meal tasted totally different than what I thought it started at the beginning. Like, I'm not eating that to like, oh God, you needed to eat a, a whole heap of this humble pie. You see that pie over there? Go eat all of it. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: I just got to call out, I was thinking exactly the same humble pie uh, analogy. So it's, a, it's humble pie that turned into apple pie. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, I feel myself going through a very similar process of where um, there is that initial resistance. So um, in, my, in my experience, for me, what has since changed is not that I've come to some, you know, uh, self-described enlightened perspective that, yes, I am deluded and all feedback is the truth but rather both views can be true at the same time. And given some element of equal consideration in order to successfully synthesize and then create a new perspective or behavior um, going forward. So while I still feel akin to what the question states, I also know that that's beside the point. What's important for me is that I'm receiving an additional perspective of someone else's experience of me. You know, not whether they think what they think is objectively true or not. What they are giving me is their experience. And it doesn't mm. matter what they're saying is
0: true or not. It's what ha- actually happened. Does that make sense? Yeah, so everyone has different context. Mm. And so what makes sense in their context doesn't necessarily make sense to you because you have different context. Mm. And so what I've sort of said in the very first part of this was that whatever they're saying... There is a learning in there, even if it's just about that person alone. Yep. And if you want to hopefully help others, you should try to understand others. And this doesn't mean that they would you know, have the same conclusion from a circumstance as you, because you know, you've know you seen three things, but then you've got the whole life experience up to that point. <laughs> and so these three <laughs> data points that you've both seen together then get calibrated into that. And so I've, there's always a learning and feedback, even yep. if you don't agree at all. That's yep. eight, learning, still. Yep. So so try to, first, in my opinion, ask clarifying questions so you understand what they're saying and then figure out what the hell to do next.
1: Yeah. So uh, I think to, to give someone a model um, to, to practically uh, implement, clarifying questions is fantastic. Um, when receiving feedback, there's no point in ever saying, uh, you're wrong, here's why. Nothing you say unless the person is like, insane <laughs> mm. matters because mm. instead what you should be saying is well i would um i would suggest what you say instead is thank you for the value feedback i greatly appreciate it then said about doing the internal work yourself like Duncan mm. mm. laid out um and to do otherwise suggest you either care more about your perception or reputation or just being right mm.
0: Mm. yeah totally um totally you, you <laughs> i think everyone wants to grow right um, and well, so grow must change with that. a positive spin and I don't know, change is grow with a negative spin. Um, now you can find things yourself, you definitely can. Um, you can find things from like I don't know, reading a book, but you can also find things from others letting you know about them. Um, so I think you want to have as many people helping you to grow as possible. Um, and if you don't sort of thank them. So step one, thank you for the feedback i Just you know, step two, clarify. I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying, blah 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 blah. Then I think, okay, cool. Is it right if I digest this for a little bit and then I journal and then I, that'd be the thing I'll be journaling about that day. And what I find is you just unpack it and it's like this little one seed then sprouts into a giant oak tree. <laughs> and then you go back and say to that person, you go, like, whoa, this is cool. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, I completely agree. So, uh, last question for Canda.
0: Probably last question for the day because it's almost an hour yeah. again. <laughs> we all got almost halfway through.
1: <laughs> yeah, almost. Um, I think we've um, reverted in our ability to keep things uh, squarely time-boxed within an hour. But on we, mo- on we go. Uh, there is far too much psychobabble around these days. So I think for the purpose of addressing this, I had to Google psychobabble. Uh, <laughs> Therefore, there's not enough because
0: you don't know what it is.
1: (laughs) Well, okay. So when you find a definition, it's writing or talk using jargon from psychiatry or psychotherapy without particular accuracy or relevance. I would totally define it totally different. Well, me too. Um,
0: uh, You can go first if you want. All right, let's do it. Psychobabble for me is talking about psychoanalysis in, in any kind. And I think that... You know, people have sort of like, oh, everyone's talking about their, their their mental health or something. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good thing, <laughs> you know. Um, and I think that for for a, too long in my life, there wasn't enough of this. And and I would say that we started off this podcast and it's kind of like group therapy, which is mm. psychobabble. Yeah. Um, and that I enjoy this. This is fun. Um, yeah. Now, I'm sure you could do it badly. And I think, you know, James and I are trying to have mutually positive some conversations. You know, I enjoy it and add to him and he enjoys it and add to me. So all else equal, you shouldn't do 100% psychobabble. But I feel mm. that for a long time, there was like almost zero psychobabble in my life. And yep. if I look at, say, my family, um, we were growing up and you're, you're going to love this, James. And, and I'm sorry, family, because actually they do listen to this. The Eleanor <laughs> Roosevelt ones, we would discuss people much more. You know, we weren't really discussing <laughs> ideas. So, so small minds discuss people and great minds discuss ideas. And ideas, well, I think, are more the psychobabble side of things. It's about mm. an idea that is applied to me and my family. And I love them, but I think, you know, growing up, that was more, but I think we do have more edifying conversations now.
1: Yeah. Okay, so um, when I t- when I looked at this statement and tried to glean from it the, I guess, the, the purpose it was serving to relate to candor, I took the interpretation of people using... Uh, you know, certain tools from psych- psycho- from psychiatry or psychotherapy without understanding to a, a, an acceptable degree of what that tool really is. So my approach was to extend the interpretation out to something like there are too many people talking like they know stuff when they really don't. Mm. Or something amounting to the Dunning-Kruger effect, which we've discussed previously, which is there's this uh, interesting... Um, a pendulum where people who, the more ignorant people are, the more knowledgeable they think themselves to be. (laughs) Um, And the inverse is also shown to be true. So in this interpretation, um, which I admittedly find being stark contrast to whether people think too much, I would agree, yes, there is too much or there are too many overconfident people dispelling their quote wisdom, I would say. Uh, And I just want to quickly quote uh, an earlier uh, um, subject on our podcast, Tim Minchin. Opinions are like assholes. Everybody has one. Mm. However, where they differ is your opinion should be examined thoroughly
0: and regularly. (laughs) Therefore, you should not be embarrassed to ask where the toilet is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. We're coming up to the end of this. Let's do summary time. Um, I always, always find it interesting to talk um, with people about this stuff. And, I don't know if you'll pick on this, but we try to sort of optimize for conversation, which means saying one point, not five points. Because then it's hard to have a conversation if someone said five things, You can't. what do you respond to? Um, and so for me, um, the sort of summary is, hopefully, you know, you can learn about your emotional identity by talking to other people. And mm. say, is feedback off? You know, talking about this, I'm like, well, I didn't even understand this question. That's, a, that's something about my emotional identity. Like, why would it be embarrassing to ask where the toilet is? You know, you know, why would it be, you know, feeling um, disturbing if somebody likes you back that you like? Um, and so this is part of this. And so speaking of James, he's like, well, this is why someone could. And I'm like, oh, OK, I didn't I didn't think of the world that way. Mm. Um, so for me, um, yeah, I, um, I don't know if I'll oh, ever totally understand who I am. It's, it's like, I don't know, a dog trying to chase its tail or something. You know, you sort of you, you, you understand more about yourself in one area and that changes who you are in another area. So it's just never ending puzzle. Um, mm. and, but I find learning about myself just just really good fun, and yeah. I used to want to learn about the world a lot, and I now I, I devoted like I don't know zero time to learning about myself ten years ago, uh, but now a lot a lot of it's actually about this. I'm only learning about the world to learn about myself in some respects, but I'm learning about myself to learn about the world too. So they both show the other side. So, anyways, summary. I don't know who I am, and this has been helpful. And hopefully, I will continue to learn about who I am into the future. <laughs>
1: um, okay, to, to to lead on from Duncan's, um, I guess, framing of this particular week's summary, uh, there is an incredible benefit from going from just internalizing and you know personally absorbing information from your own um, self-directed learning to taking it out into the world and Expressing it with other people, and that's where I feel like um, the, the 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 exponential gain between me doing something as rudimentary as reading this article on emotional identity uh, from the School of Life, and then thinking about it, writing out my responses, and then thrashing that out with Duncan on on a particular forum like this, I, I feel is an entirely step change experience in my exploration of how I understand uh, or perceive certain things. So, and and that is interesting because that is, um, I think this is what you were going for, Duncan, a particular lens on how you understand something like your own emotional identity. Like, so, um, you know, theory in, uh, what is it? Practice in theory are the same, but in practice, theory and practice are very different. So you can theorize and unintellectualize till the cows come home about what you perceive as your own emotional identity being but try it out with someone else see what they actually have to give you in terms of an additional perspective and you will hopefully learn something or a lot mm. yeah all right
0: we'll speak to you all soon all right see you later Bye. Duncan.